0: Welcome to episode one hundred and ninety two of Real Life Ghost Stories. And to kick things off this week, I need to say thanks to some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Kimberly Garnett, Jade Townsend, Jody Castry, Adriana, Kenneth Terrell, Kate, Amy Hardy, Kathy Harran, Christine Gomez, Emma Christmas. And little pooty, naked and afraid. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week. Our film review is 28 Weeks Later. 28 Weeks Later was released in 2007. It has 6.9 out of 10 on IMDb and 72% on Rotten Tomatoes. 6 months after the rage virus was inflicted on the population of Great Britain, the US army helps to secure a small area of London for the survivors to repopulate and start again, but not everything goes according to plan. I don't know what's going on at me at the moment, but I'm having a real zombie zombie time of it. I'm a, I'm in a zombie vibe, I'm in a zombie mood. I uh, have started re-watching The Walking Dead. So I have religiously watched The Walking Dead series one to five, I would say, about three or four times. And I've never gotten past season five. So what I've done this time is I've started on season five and I'm, and I'm going to keep going. I'm going to finally catch up with The Walking Dead. I'm just loving the zombie vibes at the minute. And I was thinking about the film review this week and I was going to do like Pearl. I was going to do Scream 6 things that I will do in the future. But I thought, do you know what film I haven't seen in ages? 28 Weeks Later. Now, if you've been a long time listener to the podcast, you will know that 28 Days Later is one of my favorite. Well, actually, no, that us scratch that. It probably is my favorite zombie movie ever made. 28 Days Later with Killian Murphy. It is an absolutely fantastic film. I'm pretty sure when we reviewed it a couple of years ago, I gave it five stars and a well deserving five stars. I absolutely love that movie. And I also remembered not loving 28 Weeks Later as much as I loved 28 Days Later. So I thought it was worth a rewatch. And I will, I just, I'm just going to say it from the beginning. The zombies in 28 Days Later and 28 Weeks Later are terrifying. They are so scary. I. I'm not a sprinter okay so I would be dead in no time if I have to sprint away from anything I'm dead if I c- can run like at a leisurely pace over a long period of time yeah fine I'll, I'll survive don't worry about it the walking dead zombies I'm gonna I'll beat the shit out of those guys I'll be absolutely fine whacking with a knife in the head fine they're loud they're slow Fine, like I- I'll survive, don't worry about it twenty eight days slash twenty eight weeks later zombies I'm dead and in- I'm dead instantaneously. I'm sacrificing myself because I'm not going through it. I love Robert Carlyle as an actor. And the film opens with Robert Carlyle and his wife hold up with some other random people during the outbreak, the original outbreak of the Rage virus. And they're in this house in the country just trying to survive. And you find out that Robert Carlyle and his wife, their children were actually on a school trip when the virus broke out. So they're assuming that the children are fine, but they don't actually know, but they weren't in the country at the time. And I saw somebody commented and said that Robert Carlyle was wasted in this movie. And I have to say, I actually agree. I really do agree that he was wasted. He's such a great actor. And his actions in the film. Oh I mean it's tough. You're watching it and you're going. Oh I hate you so much right now. But what would I do in this scenario. And that's the thing I think that I particularly love. About 28 Days Later and 28 Weeks Later. Is that both movies. Present to us with the like. Philosophical and moral quandaries. That happen when we as humans. Are faced with certain destruction. Like. Who do you save? How far will you go to save yourself? Like, are we really as selfless as we think we are? Because you always think, no, I would definitely sacrifice myself for my family, my friends, my, my partner, my kids, my loved ones, whoever it is. But it, when you're faced with that actual real life or death scenario, like, would you? How many lives are, like, worth saving? Like, in a utilitarian society, like, do we kill loads of people for the good of even more people? there's a whole like moral quandary about how you would respond and react in the outbreak of the zombie apocalypse, and I think it—I think twenty-eight days later and twenty-eight weeks later—explore that incredibly well. And it not only explores it like on a on a individual level, like a familial level, but it also kind of then goes to like military level. So when you're in the army and you're given orders, do you follow those orders? through and like a governmental level so the governmental orders are pretty fucking extreme so do you follow them through and it's it's really it's a really good little thread to pick at when you're watching the movies and that combined with like the most terrifying zombies that you could possibly imagine I mean it's pretty pretty intense like it is a pretty intense watch Robert Carlyle like I said is great in it also, the um, two child actors, so Imogen Poots plays the daughter and I can't remember the son's name. They're all so good in it. They're believable. You know, you want them to be okay. They've been through a lot and you can see that they've been through a lot and you really are rooting for them. And I, I was kind of, like I was here for them. There's like some army people that get involved that want to help the kids and, you know, everybody's, everybody, you, you do end up rooting for people. You end up rooting for the fundamental good in humanity when you're watching this film. However... What I will say is that the filming choices are not great at times. So there's like a brilliant opening shot where Robert Carlyle is sprinting through the countryside and the camera pans out and you realise that he's being chased by like scores of these people infected with the rage virus. And there's moments like that that are really good and really effective. But there are lots of moments as well. And I understand that they were trying to portray like panic and chaos But it was so hard to follow at times because it was A, dark and B, really, really chaotic. Like people are running, people are in the shot, they're not in the shot. There's like blood, guts, gore everywhere, people biting, fighting, screaming. And I do, like I said, I understand they're trying to portray that's what's happening. Nobody knows what's going on, etc. But as a watcher, it's like it, it does that thing. Where it makes you feel a bit sick, a bit nauseous, almost like you're feeling motion sickness watching it. And there were a lot of moments like that where I was like, oh, just move on to the next scene, because I don't I don't care what's happening here. It's too messy. It's it's annoying me. And again, you know, we're suspending our disbelief because this is a story, this is a film. But I just fundamentally really disliked a lot of the choices that they made in the plot. Like, you find out very early on that the the military have have decided and and the government obviously have decided to repopulate England despite them admitting that they know absolutely sweet fuck all about this virus but they're like yes yeah, fine we'll just put people back in it's fine don't worry about it and they you know obviously try and do it in a controlled way but clearly nobody's communicating with each other and I know that we've all lived through a pandemic and lots of uh lots of governments did not communicate effectively so it's not that far beyond the realms of possibility but when you're watching this, you're like, this virus obliterated an entire population in an incredibly violent and crazy way and we're just allowing people back in? Somehow, I don't think so. Also, I just think that if we ever end up in this situation, in the zombie apocalypse, everything goes tits up, whatever happens, just don't go in areas where you're not meant to go. If an area is restricted... You're going to get your face eaten off if you try and go in there. So just don't do it. I think I think we all just, that's just rules to live by. Don't go into the restricted area. You get your face eaten off. And one final thing to say about this movie is that it gets an entire star added on, literally, for the most inventive use of a helicopter as a weapon. Because I'd forgotten about that scene. And Oh dear God was i watching that with my mouth open it is absolutely genius so fundamentally this film i think is a four star movie for me it's a good zombie movie but it's absolutely not as good as 28 days later i think they could have done more robert Carlyle, and i really want them to do it 28 months later you know 28 years later i want them to do it i want i want to i want another film in the franchise for sure Which brings us to our story this week and again this week we're cracking into a super famous story and I kind of thought again like in the last couple of weeks that this story would kind of be quite short and I had two stories in mind but actually the story itself ended up having absolutely swathes of information that we can dive into so let's crack into it. My nana used to tell me stories of strange things that would happen in the local area. Stories of banshees and fairies. And one story of a man who was cycling home on his bike one night and his cap was lifted clean off his head by an unseen force. I loved that story in particular because there is a beautiful naivety to it and just a hint of absurdity. My nana would always then say, that might have been more to do with the fact that he was on his way home from the pub. My mum told me that when she was young, people would come visiting And the adults would sit around the fire late into the night, smoking and telling stories. And the children would stay up as long as possible, trying not to be seen, and absolutely scared witless of the stories that they were hearing. Old Irish stories like this, and the old Irish tradition of storytelling, shaped my love for stories today. There is something incredibly comforting about the way that stories somehow simultaneously grow, but also stay the same. The fundamental basics are there, the ingredients that matter. But somehow, along the way, extra information is added late into the night in a haze of smoke and contentment. The story we are going to explore today has been told and retold numerous times. Ideas have been added and taken away, and for some of you listening, this story will feel like being wrapped in nostalgia. And for others, while the story is new, it will retain the basic ingredients that seem to spread across time and place. Fermanagh is a county in Northern Ireland, and our story takes place in an area called Cunine, close to the border with the Republic of Ireland. The house stands alone and isolated in the forest of Crocnagrally. And for many years, it was completely taken by the trees. You had to be really looking for the house to be able to see it. You practically had to know exactly where it was. It was empty but full of the lush green life of the forest. But in 2016, that all changed. The trees around the house were cleared by the local forestry department and the house was suddenly revealed again. And the stories of the ghost house of Cuneen resurfaced. But our story actually begins all the way back in 1913 with the Murphy family. There had been strange stories that circulated around the land before this. And before the Murphy family, the cottage had had three previous family owners. The Burnside's, the Corrigan's and the Sherry's. The Sherry's had only occupied the house for one single night and then quietly left and sold it six months later. There was a rumour that the house was haunted by a man who had been murdered on the day he drew out his pension but the ghost that was actually seen by a man visiting the house didn't seem to resemble the ghost of a murdered old pensioner. The man came into the house early one morning and sat by the fireside and while sitting he saw a ghost and I quote, come down like a ball of wool in a black bag by the trap door and coach round the floor. Whatever that means. In 1913, the family living in the cottage were the Murphys. The widow Murphy, her son and her five daughters. Her husband, Mr. Murphy, had died in a freak accident where he had suffered a fatal head injury. There is not much else written about Mr. Murphy's death, but what is known is that it seemed to have been the catalyst for the events that followed. After Mr. Murphy's death, the house had been full. The men of the community had carried his body to the Murphy home and the women of the community had swept in and washed and prepared the body, laying him out on the bed. He looked as though he were sleeping, with only a red bruise creeping over his left temple. The word spread quickly that Mr. Murphy had died and the people of the community prepared to go to the house to mourn. The cottage heaved with life As people gathered together to pray, they said decades of the rosary over the body. When the keener arrived, the crowd in the room parted slightly to let her through. She wore no shoes and it was hard to determine her age. She was wild and the people were half afraid and half respectful of her. She crouched in the corner next to his bed and with her hands in the air she began to wail. The wail swelled to fill the room and then the house, and then it filled the hearts of the people, and as she wailed she began to pull at her skirts and her hair, and the air was filled with the sounds of the wails of the people in the house. A cacophony of heartbreak filled the night air as the men and women breathed life and sound into their sorrow. Then she stopped and quietly slipped out of the house into the night. The wake continued into the early hours of the morning and the next day the body of Mr. Murphy was taken and buried and the Murphy family were left to try and continue their lives. People do strange things around the time of a death and the widow Murphy rolled her eyes when for the third time in as many days there was a pounding on the door. She threw open the door. "'knowing that there was no one there. "'The local boys seemed to think it was hilarious "'to come in the evening and hammer on her door and run away. "'They probably thought that there was no man in the house "'to give them a hiding if he caught them, "'so they were just having some fun. "'Although it wasn't much fun for her, really. "'She could never catch them, though. "'She couldn't even hear the telltale giggles "'as they hid in the trees. "'She sighed and shook her head and closed the door.' No sooner had she clicked the latch than the house was filled with the deafening booms of banging as fists pounded on every door and window in the house. Mrs. Murphy felt her heart beat faster and her breath caught in her throat. This wasn't local boys. But she didn't know what it was and soon the sounds had changed. Above the cottage was a room that was used for storage, and it was only accessible via one stone staircase to the side of the house. The family began to hear the sound of heavy footsteps coming to and from the room, and when they would go to check, no one would be there. Mrs. Murphy was frightened now, and she invited her neighbours around to sit with her. She partly wanted to make sure that she wasn't going mad, and she needed the proof for herself. They too sat and heard the banging on the windows and doors and heard the footsteps moving around upstairs but there was no explanation forthcoming. And the disturbances got worse. Plates would levitate off the table and fly across the room smashing into the wall. Pots and pans would follow and would clatter around the kitchen as though they had a mind of their own. The entity would rap out sounds that seemed to follow a very particular rhythm. It seemed to favour the soldier's song, which is what is now the national anthem of Ireland and would tap the tune of the song out loudly throughout the house. The final straw was when one of the beds levitated several inches off the ground before crashing back down to the floor again. Of course, Mrs. Murphy did the only thing she knew to do, and she called in the clergy, Father Coyle, from Maguire's Bridge, was the first priest to pay a visit to the house. He visited out of courtesy, but was shocked to see shapes appearing and disappearing on the walls of the cottage, and he witnessed first-hand the pots and pans clattering around the kitchen without any human involvement. The haunting seemed to be centralised in one room in particular and when Father Coyle did a vigil in that room he recalled seeing the bedclothes on the empty bed rise and fall as though someone was lying in the bed breathing. He heard the snores of a man and horrifying wails and moans coming from the storage room above. The strange man-shaped shape in the bedclothes seemed to cough and splutter like a man breathing his last breath. And when it seemingly did breathe its last breath, the shape disappeared and the bedclothes flattened out again. He could not fathom what was happening in the house and called MP Care Healy, who refused point-blank to believe what he was seeing. Another priest described going there one night and finding the mother and two girls sleeping on pallets around the fire away from the haunted room. The moment the children returned to the bed, there was a sound like a kicking horse. The bedclothes were thrown across the room. He held the children by their forehands with one hand and laid the other hand over their feet. When the phenomena continued, he was convinced the children could not have produced the sounds. At the suggestion he made that it came from a far distance, from hell, there was a big hiss like an animal. He stood with his hand on the bed and challenged it. There was clearly something like a rat moving around his hands under the bedclothes. He had a shock and the feeling of an eel twisting around his wrist, but the feeling spread no further. A canon of the diocese visited the house sixteen times and experienced numerous paranormal incidences. Once he heard a musical noise in the ceiling and invited the entity to whistle and it did. The canon believed that there was an intelligence working behind the entity. They began to challenge the entity by asking it questions in both Irish and Latin. They would ask for a specific amount of knocks and those specific amount of knocks would come. They would ask questions about the people in the room and they would be answered correctly. At one point the canon asked, Can you put the dog out from under the bed? and the dog came running from beneath the bed. When holy water was sprinkled in the house, the entity seemed to move away from where the holy water fell. The ghost house of Cunine became the first recorded sanctioned exorcism in Ireland. In 1944, that same canon wrote a letter to Shane Leslie, who was writing a book on the Cunine poltergeist. In his letter, the canon wrote in detail about his experience and he stated that, Our usual course, whether Father Smith and I went together or singly, was to go before the family retired. You may remember that I told you when the first manifestations were made, the bishop, Dr McKenna, was notified about them. He told Father Smith to say Mass in the house. There were three apartments in the house. He said Mass in the kitchen, which was the middle one, and this was done at a very early period, the children could from that time sleep undisturbed in the kitchen. When Father Smith and myself visited the house, we usually had the children put in their own bed, which was in the room to the right as you entered. Sometimes the knocking etc. would commence vigorously as soon as they would go to bed, otherwise less vigorously, perhaps very mildly or perhaps not at all. Sometimes it did not start for about an hour after they went to bed. On this particular night there was no noise in the children's room although they had been in bed for more than an hour. The rest of us were sitting around the kitchen fire when I asked James, unknown to the others, he was an intelligent boy of about 25 years, to get a candle and matches. We went to the other room on the ground floor where no one was sleeping. This was a fairly large room two windows with blinds drawn, a bed covered with a white quilt and also some chairs. We stood in the middle of the room, in almost complete darkness, and listened. For five minutes, all was silence. Suddenly, we heard the tramp diagonally across the room upstairs of something like the footfall of a fairly large dog or a sheep. It continued... We listened. James said there was nothing in the room above but some chaff and a bundle of straw. The room was being used as a barn and was reached by stone steps and the outside at the gable end. Leaving James where he was, I took the candle and matches, went out, up the steps and stood at the door for a few minutes. I then walked around the room three times. The barn was as James described it. I heard or saw nothing. I returned to James who told me that the tramp of the dog had continued all the time. James then went to the barn and I remained below. It had the same result. Nothing above and the tramp of the dog heard below. Very soon after we were standing together in the middle of the room. Something I cannot describe and did not see. "'Rushed down, practically touching us and went into the earth. "'For the first time we were really frightened, "'but soon we immediately noticed that the tramping above had ceased. "'I then said to James that it was breaking day and to pull up the blinds. "'He did so. "'Day was dawning as it was summertime. "'We clearly saw the room and immediately noticed, "'although there was no wind blowing in the room.' "'that the bedclothes were moving up and down fairly fast, "'especially in the centre of the bed. "'I actually went and held my hand over the bed "'and tested the matter for two or three minutes. "'After that, we went to the kitchen "'where the family, Mrs Murphy, her two grown-up daughters "'and I think Father Smith or possibly some neighbour were chatting. "'We had been absent about half an hour. "'We told them what had happened.' They wandered, took their chairs and stools and came to the room. The movement of the bedclothes were gradually getting more pronounced, vigorous and defined. The whole thing resembled the form of a person lying diagonally across the bed in his or her death agony. The centre where the clothes were heaving most was where the chest would be. Soon we could hear the heavy breathing, the gurgling in the throat, the symptoms of pain. It resembled what country people would call a hard death. From the time they came from the kitchen, the whole death scene occupied ten minutes at least. Finally, the movements and the death symptoms ceased, and the room was as silent as a grave. I only saw this scene once, but heard that there were further such manifestations later on, but I can't vouch for their truth. Soon after this scene, I was transferred from Maguire's Bridge to Fintona, but I heard afterwards that old people from the locality said that in the olden days, an occupant of the house hanged himself in that room. I cannot vouch for this. Now I come to item number three, which is as strange in its way as anything else recorded. Sometime near the end of my time as curate of Maguire's Bridge, I took it in my head, That possibly other members of the family were affected, as the people said, and that possibly one of the full-grown daughters, Annie, aged about 20, or Mary, aged about 22 years, was affected. So I went in the middle of the day, alone, saw Mrs. Murphy, and asked her to tell me about the whole truth of the matter. She told me that Annie was affected, and that it did not develop until mass had been said in the kitchen. Being a big girl, the mother said, and I agreed, that we should not let it be known publicly. The mother sent to the field where she was working. She came in. I brought Mrs Murphy and herself to the bedroom on the right where there were so many manifestations. I told her to stretch herself out on the bed and then threw a rug over her. To my great surprise, from the ceiling above the door which led into the room from the kitchen a peculiar rush immediately came. "'until it reached halfway down the wall "'and then turned at right angles "'until it reached the head of the bed "'where the girl was "'and then the knocking commenced most vigorously. "'I asked her to rise. "'She arose and immediately the same rush, "'distinctly audible, rushed back, "'turned at right angles and into the ceiling. "'I then asked Mrs. Murphy to get into the bed. "'She did so and there were no manifestations.' I asked Annie to go again, and she did so, and whatever came, came by the same route, and then departed as before. I tried Annie twice more with the same result, and also Mrs. Murphy with a negative result. This, to my mind, was very strange indeed. Any person in the room could hear the comings and goings as distinctly as the ticking of a grandfather's clock, but the noises were five times louder on this occasion, The final item is, soon after the manifestations commenced, Father Smith was out on a sick call. He was passing Murphy's on returning and had the Blessed Sacrament with him. The noises were great around the bed that night. Father Smith and some of the neighbours were in the room, so after lowering the light, Father Smith took out the picks and made the sign of the cross with it. Over the bed, unknown to the others. In Catholicism, the pyx is a container that is used to carry the body of Christ. He had no sooner done so than all the noises imaginable were made before the evil spirits departed and did not return that night. The people in the room threw themselves on their faces and were terrified, thinking Father Smith was about to be attacked. I heard the story of the terrible noises afterwards, and of what they believed was an attack on Father Smith, from some of the people who were present. They did not know he had used the picks. This is a summary of all of my experiences. The exorcism masses that took place in the house actually made no difference, and there were whisperings abroad in the local area that the family themselves were responsible for the goings-on in the house. In some sources, it is said that the bulk of the activity seemed to centre around 20-year-old Anne, but the worst of the rumours centred around the son, James. Rumour had it that James had uncovered a book in the forest of Crocnagrally, a book called The Legions of Doom, which laid out the ways in which demons could be summoned. The local people whispered that he had become obsessed with this book and obsessed with the darkness, and that it was he who was responsible for what was happening in the ghost cottage of Cuneen. He had dabbled in the darkness and invited it in, and now the family were suffering. And while this part of the story has stuck around, probably because it makes the story much more juicy, the canon wrote in that same letter that it was simply not true. He wrote, and I quote, It was noised abroad that the children themselves, three of them in particular ranging from 9 to 13 years, were making the noises on the wood at the head and bottom of the bed. On this particular evening, there were nine or ten in the room. The knocking all around fairly vigorous, and although none of us there believed that the children were knocking, I suggested that two men in the room should come over and hold the hands and feet of the children, so that a false rumour should be disproved. They did so. I sat on the bedstock also. The knocking continued as usual, but much more vigorously, for ten minutes, when suddenly the two men rushed away, saying that they were being punched and pushed off the bed. They would not return. I was not pushed away from the bed, but something moved close to my back and down the length of the bed. I was not afraid, and remained for five minutes or longer. This killed the rumour that the children were making the noises. It was also rumoured that some of the family read bad books and had the black art, etc. This was quite untrue. Despite the fact that the rumours were not true, they persisted, and it was all too much for Mrs. Murphy. She packed up the meagre belongings that she had, and she and her family made their way to Glasgow in order to board a boat to America. She thought that leaving the house would be the end of their troubles, but it wasn't. To the horror of Mrs. Murphy and her family, the noises and raps continued on board the ship. There are documented accounts of people on board the ship complaining about noises coming from the Murphy's cabin. To the point where the captain was forced to intervene and threatened to put Mrs. Murphy and her family off the ship if the noises did not stop. They didn't, but sailors were superstitious and the captain was worried that this story of the poltergeist would spread and spook his crew. Whatever was happening, the captain and Mrs. Murphy reached an agreement and the Murphys made safe passage to America and set up a new life there. According to the stories, the family were not free from the burden of the poltergeist even then, and it is said that it took months before the disturbances ceased. Anne, the daughter, was said to have been so disturbed by the events that she ended up in a mental health facility for the rest of her life. And according to the story, it was not only the family who were impacted. The three priests who were involved in the story seem to have fared less than well, too. One priest had a nervous breakdown, another spinal meningitis, and the third facial paralysis. But what about today? You can't visit the house today, but it's boarded up and fenced up. According to locals, there is still a feeling of darkness around the cottage, and many foolhardy souls have gone to the house at night to investigate. People have reported an oppressive atmosphere, a feeling of evil, things being thrown and bangs and knocks. And while not everyone believes the stories, most people will tell you that there is something not quite right about the place. So the, the Cooneyin Ghost House was somewhere that is on my list of places to visit. Um, Last year I had like a, a list of places all over Ireland that I wanted to visit and do vlogs of and um, it ended up not happening because I just wasn't very well but that's beside the point the Cooney Poltergeist house was on my list and you can still go and visit it and I think the, the fact that it's boarded up is actually a relatively recent thing I don't think it, it was boarded up until the last couple of years and I think now it's been boarded up and there's a fence been erected around it. So you actually can't even get into it at all, which I understand it's a health and safety thing, but also slightly disappointed. Kind of want to go in and see what the crack is. So let's try and like separate fact from fiction with this story. So there was a Murphy family. That much is absolutely true. There was a man, according to the census, named Michael Murphy. And he died of a brain injury. I think there are some sources that say that he fell off a horse or fell off a donkey. But either way, he died of a brain injury. I think he was about 51, so he was relatively young. And the family were left behind, a widow and six children, one boy, five girls. There were The boy's name was James, and there was a girl named Anne, as well as other children. And eventually, they did absolutely leave to America it seems that the letters are real letters from the canon, for example, about his experiences. So those stories, those letters were gathered by a man named Shane Leslie and his son is interviewed talking about his dad. So his son's name is Sir Jack Leslie, I think he's interviewed talking about his dad's um, kind of obsession with this particular case and Shane Leslie wrote to all of the priests that were involved and interviewed all of the priests that were involved in this case and there are actually newspaper reports newspaper articles from the time so that that talk about you know the things that we outlined in the story the knocks the bangs the levitating furniture the smashing plates etc cetera, etc cetera. so something happened in that house something happened to that family, something happened in that house, whatever that something was. There is one bit that I added kind of poetic license to, and that is that some stories say that it was like years after the death of Mr. Murphy and others say that it was very soon after he died that all of these disturbances started happening. And originally when I was started writing this story, the original sources that I was referencing from, they said that it happened very soon afterwards. But actually when I got to the end of the research, What I believe is that Mr. Murphy died in 1907 and the disturbances started five years later. I also added in the bit about the wake and the keening because I was reading a book about wakes and keening and stuff. And it is very likely that during the funeral they would have had a wake and they would have had a woman to come in and keen, which is to cry and and wail and scream. And that allowed, therefore, other people to release their emotions about the death of that person. And actually, when I was kind of looking it up and researching around, keening happened in Ireland right up until the 1950s. So it is very likely that after the death of Mr. Murphy, they would have had a keener that would have come to the house and helped people unleash those emotions and unlock those emotions. Those keeners were generally women who lived on the fringes of society. They were like healers, women who had a knowledge of the land. They were people who were kind of slightly afraid of them, but also simultaneously respectful of them. So I that that was my poetic license that I added in to the story. One of the things that I am really fascinated by about this story is the fact that it is the first recorded incident of a exorcism taking place in Ireland. And I think when you think about old Catholic Ireland, because you you think about you know the fact that Ireland was so religious, it was so incredibly religious, and the Catholic faith was had a, had a really strong hold over the people at the time you would imagine that exorcisms were being lamped out left right and center somebody sneezes in mass exorcism somebody you know their crops don't grow exorcism no actually apparently that wasn't the case this is the first recorded incident of an exorcism in ireland and actually i i, I would imagine there haven't been very many since so obviously whatever was seen in this house, frightened people. And the reports suggest that the older members of the clergy in the area were like, absolutely not, Don't want, didn't want to get involved. They were like, fuck this, I'm not going into that house. I don't care what it is, demon or otherwise, I'm not getting involved. It's none of my business. And it was the younger clergy who, and they're, they're described in one source as like coming in like angels, trying to rescue the, fa- the family members. So it's the younger clergy, it seems, that came in and, and were like, No, we can we can sort this out and manage to get the exorcism sanctioned. And I think um it's very important to say as well that like, I don't know about the experiences of these people in this house. Like I wasn't there, I don't know what happened. But I don't know if the priest's later afflictions are strictly linked to the poltergeist. Like those those three things that happened, like facial paralysis, spinal meningitis and a nervous breakdown, are three very horrible and unfortunate things to happen are they necessarily linked to the house and the poltergeist i don't think so i think probably if these people had not um experienced if these three priests had not experienced this house those things potentially could have happened anyway i think with all of these stories of ghost houses and potentially demonic stuff whatever it is whatever people think it is anything negative that even is remotely linked to the house immediately becomes associated with the house and The house gets the blame for whatever it is that's happened. But I think we can safely say that um, spinal meningitis, facial paralysis, which sounds like a stroke or maybe Bell's palsy or something, and a nervous breakdown could all have happened independent of the house or whatever was in the house at the time. And it would seem that, you know, these exorcism masses didn't work. And I have been thinking a lot about whether or not the exorcism masses didn't work or whether or not the rumour mill had started and there was no going back. So obviously there was rumours in the area that James the son had found a book in the woods called Legions of Doom. Now listen, alright, I think that part of the story is absolute bollocks, to be honest. I don't think that a Catholic farming family in the back arse of nowhere in Fermanagh in the early 1900s are going to randomly stumble across a book called Legions of Doom and immediately start summoning demons. I'm sorry, just don't think it's going to happen. However, if those rumours did circulate, honestly, I can see why Mrs. Murphy left, took her family and went. Because old Catholic Ireland was a ruthless place. Incredibly ruthless. And one of the most important things that you had as a family were your reputation. And if your reputation was not good in the local area, then things were not going to be good for you. There are reports that in the local community, after all these things started started happening and the rumor mill started about legions of doom and summoning demons and whatever, that the, the children in the household were starting to be shunned by their peers because people would be thinking, well, I'm not getting involved with that family because they're into dark magic and summoning demons and stuff. So I did wonder if Mrs. Murphy just went, oh my God, I don't have a choice here. I can't stay here because I've got all this stuff going on in my house and nobody likes my family. Everybody thinks my family are witches. So what is what is my option here? So she whooshed up and went to America. Now, the additions to the story of the poltergeist following them, that they had trouble on the ship, that they had trouble when they arrived in America. There's reports that they moved several times, that Anne ended up in a mental health facility All of those things, I can't verify them. What I can verify is that they did, in fact, up and go to America, the entire family. And they were still in America in, I think, 1930. They were still recorded as being in America. So they definitely up and left and went to America. So, you know, the other bits about the mental health facility, the podcast following them, they might just be juicy bits that are added to the story, you know, as time went on. And here's my takeaway from this, having read this story. These poltergeist stories tend to follow a very similar pattern and I often wonder about people being voiceless and how the poltergeist gives them a voice. It gives them a way to get attention. It gives people a way to voice their frustrations, to maybe even voice their anger, their, their resentment, whatever it is is it possible that those children having lost their father in a very tragic and sudden way that they acted out and they needed to act out in some way to get their feelings out and what it ended up being was this manifestation in poltergeist activity and when you think about stories like alma fielding and the cock lane ghost you know there's a lot of evidence to suggest that those stories were completely fabricated as in The events were completely fabricated, but they're done very well and people are very clever and they don't do it. I don't think anybody fabricates these things to be mean or to be kind of unkind or to make fun of people. I think it's about giving some sort of emotion a voice. Now, that being said, the priests and everybody involved, they seemed pretty convinced that it wasn't the children who were doing it. There is also a paranormal investigation of the building on YouTube. It's called Northern Ireland's Greatest Haunts, the Cooney and Pottergeist, Series 2, Episode 2. And you can access it on YouTube the entire episode. And everybody who's in that house is like, this place is freaky as. And they're all not having a good time in the house. And they, you know, like the presenter said, this is the scariest house that he's been in for his entire career. So I don't know, maybe it's just a really oppressive place. Maybe it's got a bit of, hey, old fanag going on where... It's the land that is cursed or there's something in the land. I think as well, before we finish up this episode, I needed to mention that the, the canon spoke numerous times about this rush um, that he felt. And I think he meant like a wind. He talks about how he's with James the first time it happens and he feels like a wind. Just the the the, the kind of feeling of an entity rush past him and straight into the floor, straight into the ground. And then he talks about how when he makes Anne lie on the bed that he f- senses this, he s- hears it and feels this wind rush f- down from the ceiling. And it, it kind of, it does have similarities to those um, entities that are tied to the land that are talked about in hail Fanog, those ancient things. And maybe what you end up with, again, is a set of perfect circumstances where you've got, you know, six children in a household and a woman grieving her husband they're all grieving their dad it's catholic ireland maybe they don't feel like they're able to voice it in the way that they want to maybe there's other stuff going on and then maybe you've got their energy mixed with the energy of the land and it creates a perfect storm of poltergeist activity thank you so much for listening to today's episode as always the links to where i got all these stories from is in the description of this episode if you would like to send in your story you can do so by emailing it to gmail.com. you can also check out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com and if you are desperate for extra content you can subscribe to patreon that is patreon.com forward slash stories, where you can access every single main and mini episode ad free and heaps of extra content and on that note i shall see you next time